Namaste and Hari Bol, everyone. And then so um, I may just read a couple of texts and just talk about it for a few minutes but then I was just gonna ask if people had questions and questions can be about anything doesn't have to be just about the topics that we discussed so if anybody's wants to ask anything, please feel free. The, one of the principal Okay, maybe before that. Transcendental sound, spiritual sound, is transmitted from a spiritual plane. And it is understood to enter the material dimension, although it's not touched or contaminated by the material energy, via an unbroken lineage of spiritual, pure spiritual teachers. This principle is really foundational to all yogic teaching Although nowadays it's kind of like, you know, people just sort of grab anything from anywhere, like a commodity in the supermarket. But there are wonderful verses in the Vedas that speak to how this spiritual potency within transcendental sound is present when that sound is transmitted or delivered 
in an empowered way. So there is one mantra that basically it says the mantra that one receives will not deliver the desired effect if it is not received in through what is called sampradaya the an unbroken lineage of perfect spiritual teachers and for that reason some people may you know see something or hear something from an unknown source and engage in use of mantra chanting but what they are chanting is not actually their mantra it is considered like a shadow of the mantra and the shadow of course has no substance it has the same form but it doesn't have any substance or potency and so the spiritual potency becomes manifest in for most people a gradual change and a gradual transformation where people actually change they lose increasingly interest in material life and that which is temporary and they become more immersed in that which is eternal including their own spiritual being one of the mantras that we use quite a lot is known as the hari krishna mantra or the maha mantra and a lot of people associate that with you know a particular group of people known as the hari krishnas without knowing and appreciating that this is an incredibly ancient um mantra that has been used since time immemorial and is described in the vedas as being the most effective mantra in this particular age in which we live there are some people categories of yogis that are very focused on the impersonal aspect of god you know wanting to merge into the brahman effulgence and even amongst these groups the older and more authentic ones they also utilize the mantra for that purpose but in doing that they miss out on a, an, an amazing opportunity to seek something that is actually higher and more filled with spiritual flavor so in the um kali santarana upanishad it actually spells out the maha mantra as in hari krishna hari krishna 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 hari 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 ram hari ram 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 hari hari and then it says 
the 16 words of this mantra are especially meant for counteracting the sinful influence of this age of Kali. To save oneself from the contamination of this age, there is no alternative but to chant this mantra. After searching through all the Vedic literature, sorry, I lost my space. After searching through all the Vedic literatures, one cannot find a spiritual method for this age as sublime as the chanting of this Maha Mantra. So just making the point that this is a very ancient tradition and a very powerful tradition the mantras that we use, they're not the only ones, you know, we may use other mantras ourselves, but these are the principal ones that we use in our lineage. And I, anybody that has attempted to cultivate the practice of using them will testify to the changes that it makes in, in one's life. But I wanted to speak about another um, number of verses. It's in a very ancient Purana called the Adi Purana. And there is an account of a particular conversation between Lord Krishna and Arjuna. If you're familiar with the Bhagavad Gita, you know that Arjuna was a very saintly, but a great warrior prince who was called upon to engage in a pretty horrible war, a fratricidal war. And he was obliged to do it because it was the duty of the, these warriors within society to, at great risk to themselves, to sometimes engage in, in warfare for the purpose of protecting the larger population. So in the Vedic teachings, there's no while there is a promotion of the ideal of non-violence, that was not something that the warrior class was meant to embrace. They were meant to embrace the tremendous austerity of being prepared to give up their own lives for the, for the protection of the larger society against destructive influences. So Arjuna was uh, an intimate friend of, of Krishna when Krishna incarnated, when he descended and manifest over 5,000 years ago. 
and in a very confidential conversation, he stated to Arjuna, he said, Oh, Arjuna, listen attentively. When the living entity chants my name, whether out of devotion or indifference, even indifference, I never forget this act. I remain always, it remains always close to my heart. There is no vow like chanting the holy names. There is no knowledge superior to it. There is no meditation which comes anywhere near it, and it gives the highest result. No penance is equal to it, and nothing is as potent or powerful as the holy name of the Lord. Chanting is the greatest act of piety and the supreme refuge for all the troubled hearts. You can take refuge in the holy name. Even the words of the Vedas do not possess sufficient power to its magnitude. Chanting is the highest path to liberation, to peace, and to eternal life. It is the pinnacle of devotion. It is the heart's joyous proclivity and attraction. And it is the best form of remembrance of the Supreme Lord. The holy name has appeared solely for the benefit of the living entities as their Lord and Master, their supreme worshipable object, and their spiritual guide and mentor. Pretty stunning, or what? That's, that's a pretty amazing revelation. And it is on the basis of such revelations that the great and devoted yogis since time immemorial have immersed themselves in this process. And particularly in this age, there is no need to become, I mean, the Ashtanga yoga process and the Hatha Yoga processes. When I say Hatha Yoga, I'm talking about a, a whole system of internal and external purification and activity, not just the performance of asana. It is so complex. It is so rigid, meaning you can't just wing it if you want to succeed in that practice. And it is so highly technical and so demanding 
that it is difficult to have success. But in this particular age, as I mentioned, where people are considered quite fallen, they're considered unlucky to have really bad memory, to be always disturbed, <laughs> and to easily fight over anything and everything. The age of chaos, quarrel, and confusion. This particular process, if taken, even if it's not taken seriously, this particular process is incredibly effective. And it is the foundational practice on the path of bhakti. So that's about what I'm going to... That's it. That's the wrap-up. And what I'd like to do is, um, you know, open up to you guys anything that anybody wants to ask. Please feel free to do that. And I will just look for something here. See, I'm madly scrolling, but I have so much wonderful stuff here. It's full of treasure. <laughs> one, just one second. Let me just... Because there is one thing I just wanted to mention to um, conclude. Okay, yeah, you had a question? Please, could you give us a description of Lord Paramatma and Bhagavan? That would be. Um. I will see if I can easily access something. I would rather than relying on my memory and my own faulty words, I would rather read a description and I may be able to do that easily or not. I might take a little bit. Two things. Uh, could you share the Krishna speaking about the glory of the Holy Name? Could I share it? Yes, yeah, certainly. I will remind me. I will send it to you. I have a message from a, a question from someone here for you. Okay. As one practices sadhana bhakti, even very imperfectly, how is it that one experiences the gradual purification? of a state of consciousness. I've been observing so many shameful characteristics 
of my false identity lately and that it has been exhausted for instance lack of tolerance anger etc it's actually hard to not identify with any of that is this part of the actual purification process the the answer is is yes I mean, one of the things that will happen to anybody that's engaged in a genuine spiritual journey, as there is some purification of one's mind and heart, one becomes actually increasingly more aware of what you've got residing in your mind, the condition of your heart, your um, behavior in relation to others, particularly the inner behavior. Many people learn to speak a certain way externally, but internally they're just, you know, there's something else going on there. And so one will, will become actually more aware of that. And if that happens, one should not be overwhelmed. One should not beat up on oneself and get down on oneself. One must simply recognize that this is part of, you know, the characteristics of my body and mind and my state of consciousness that I have come to adopt over time. And I am very thankful to be able to see this with some clarity. Now I must begin to try to rectify some of these things recognizing that I am not all-powerful, that I'm not necessarily going to be able to do this on my own. And I must implore the Lord within my heart to change my heart, to change my mind. And in the beginning, what happens is you may say something or behave in a certain way and then later feel really crappy about it. In a bad state, you may say and behave in a way that's not good and then, you know, you won't, you refuse to recognize that, you know, feeling justified in behaving that way and it was all okay and, and when it's not. But then people will come to the point of perhaps feeling that way or being aware of it and then feeling some regret for that. One then will eventually progress where as it starts, you immediately shut it down. And then you will progress to the point where it doesn't even arise. So it, it's, there's going to be a, a progression. It's not going to happen all at once. 
there was a great personality. His name was Bhishma Deva. Bhishma Deva was also considered one of the twelve in the in the Vedas, one of the twelve Mahajans, the greatest of personalities who whose um, conduct should be emulated by everyone. He was in also he was the considered the, the grandfather or more accurately the great grandfather of Arjuna. He was born in a family of warriors and kings. Um, he took a great vow never to marry or to have any sexual activity. Um, so there would be no offspring. There was a whole thing that happened there with that. And so he, I mean, he was a person of enormous resolve, of tremendous insight and devotion. But he was playing in the role of a warrior. And he ended up in, in this great battle of Kurukshetra. Shall I tell you a little story? Yeah. The Arjuna and his brothers were considered incredibly righteous. Their cousins were very, very envious of them. Their father of, of the Pandavas, Arjuna's brothers, died at a quite young age. And his children were considered, of course, ill-equipped to assume the throne. And so the brother, the elder brother of the king that had died was appointed as the regent. He always felt a little envious of his younger brother and that he should have been king. But he was born blind. And because he was born blind, it was considered you know, lose not having that faculty is a great disadvantage and you might be um, tricked in different ways and therefore unqualified to assume the role of actually being king. So he always felt a little envious of his younger brother. So when he became the regent, his own sons were a pretty scabby bunch. <laughs> They, the Kurus, were very envious-hearted and they twisted their dad to try and push this other, their cousins off to the side. And they even plotted to murder them when they were children. There was an attempt to assassinate them along with their mother. It's, I mean, this whole story of the, in the Mahabharata is just like, it's mind-boggling what they went through. And they had to flee with their mother, four young, five young children, and live by begging, you know, and they'd come from a royal existence. The grandfather, Bhishma, remained with the main family in the hope of directing and guiding them. But there was a fundamental principles that, I mean, the warriors had to follow a pretty extreme um, code of conduct so that they would not become abusive and things. 
And for instance, if somebody challenged a warrior to fight, you could not refuse. You had to engage in that. If somebody came before an actual warrior, they call them chatriya, and bowed at your feet and begged for protection, you had to, just by that act, you had to now be willing to sacrifice your own life to protect this person. I mean, it was, it's like it was really heavy in this code. And so the grandfather, because he had remained in the, in the palace and with the, this corrupt family trying to influence them, and it was considered that he lived at, at their kindness. He ate at their table, as it were. He slept in the buildings that they provided. So he was obliged in this great battle to fight on their side. That was just part of the code of conduct. And in the course of this great battle, he had to fight with Arjuna, which was heartbreaking for him because he dearly loved this very pious warrior grandson of his. But because that was the arrangement of things as if by fate, Arjuna fought very ferociously back against him. I mean, these guys would really battle, not play around. And it is said that Grandfather Bhishma ended up being shot so full of arrows that when he fell from his chariot, not one part of his body was touching the ground. He had so many arrows through his body that his body was suspended off the ground. And because he was considered such a great hero, they began blowing conch shells. And in the whole battle, and there was a massive battlefield, all stopped. And everybody bowed to respect this great personality who had fallen. But because he was also a great mystic, a great yogi, he chose not to leave his body, not to die. And he remained in that condition for about 10 days. And what they did, because the battlefield was a place of great horror, and at nighttime when they had finished fighting, and they would, would not usually fight at nighttime. Wild animals came out and began chewing on the corpses. And so they excavated a big trench around his body. So he was sort of like, you know, protected in that way. And after the battle was finished, Arjuna's elder brother, his name was Yudhisthira. Yudhisthira. He was like a great saint, but he was also a warrior. When they were in exile, his brothers would get all bummed with him because he would like to go and find 
the hermitages of, you know, great saintly people in the forest, the rishis. And he would want to just sit there all day listening to their spiritual discourses. And they were always, you know, you know, why do we have to do this? Come on, it's time to fight. And one time he turned to his brothers and it was like, it's described his eyes were blazing with fire. And he told them, it is not yet time to fight. And when it is time to fight, even you will fear me. And then he went back to his, you know, <laughs> saintly personality <laughs> and listening to these things. <laughs> Just switched it off like that. He wasn't, you know, uh, he wasn't a victim of anger or anything. He was fierce, but at the same time, great saint. And when he saw how much death and pain had occurred and how many widows and orphans were made because of this battle, he refused to take the throne. And everybody spoke to him, even his ministers and the, the Brahminical priests and the the spiritual guides, they all told him, no, you've, you have to put aside all of these things. You have a great duty to perform to protect others. But he was not moved. He refused. They all came, the family came to see Grandfather Bhishma on the final day that he was lying there. And he was waiting for a particular astrological event that when the sun moved in a certain house, it now became an auspicious time to leave. So he, he had the power, to, even though his body was not fit place of habitation for the soul any longer. He maintained the life air within the body just by sheer strength spiritual strength, waiting for this time. But it was all preordained because he began to speak to his grandson, Yudhisthira. And he spoke to him for hours. And he spoke to him about the most amazing things. I mean, it was just like, it was extraordinary the degree to which, you know, he prevailed upon him to and told him it was his duty. He needs to put aside his own feelings and how he feels about it for the good of others. One must sacrifice their own self for the good of others and convinced his grandson to assume the throne. But in that conversation, he um, he talked about certain qualities that a person should have to be considered civilized, to be considered actually human and not animal-like. And the top of those qualities was one should not become angry. 
And then speaking further, he described the prescription of how to overcome all of these, these different qualities that degrade people. And he advised that the way to overcome anger is to seek forgiveness. That's far out. And, you know, the reason I'm speaking about this is what, you know, Paramahamsa had asked on behalf of someone. You know, when we see that we have these tendencies to be harsh or to be, to deal with others in anger and stuff, and we don't like that we're behaving this way, one way to accelerate correcting the situation and one way to make it so that your heart becomes more open and susceptible to the influence of this chanting process is to learn to learn to apologize to ask forgiveness even if what somebody has done to you is wrong, it doesn't mean your behavior necessarily becomes justified. Of course, there's a lot of nuances here, but this is a broad, a broad principle. And if one recognizes, yeah, I shouldn't have spoken to this person like that, or I shouldn't behaved in that way, it's one thing to recognize that, it's an entirely different thing and a very difficult thing to seek to set that right. And you don't have to, you know, say, well, you know, what you said and what you did was really crappy and that's why I was like that. And, you know, but anyway, I'm sorry, but you, you don't have to go there. You, you're not responsible for anybody else. Everybody's responsible for themselves. You are only responsible for your life and the way you act and the way you react to things. And so by seeking forgiveness, I'm sorry that I reacted that way and I spoke in that way it was not appropriate and it wasn't helpful, it doesn't move anything forward. Our lives don't become better. In fact, they become worse because of the way I reacted. And so I ask your forgiveness for speaking this way. That act of doing something like this really affects your consciousness. It will also affect the other person. You don't have to worry about that. But I tell you, if you behave in humility, and it takes great strength to manifest both tolerance and humility. But in doing it, your life becomes transformed and your influence upon others becomes very pronounced as well. So in, in this journey, you know, we will quickly, hopefully quickly, come to recognize our, our deficiencies you know, the bad parts of our character, uh, 
And, and when I say that, there always has to be this understanding. It is not the soul itself that is manifesting these bad characteristics. To the degree that we are overwhelmed by this false sense of the body as being the self and the mind, you know, due to the influence of what's called the ahankara or the false ego, then this is, this is where all the crap comes from. And I need to take control of the situation. And I recognize, okay, this is not really coming from the soul. It's not coming from me itself. But this other thing, the mind, is taking control here and it's misleading me. And when I ask forgiveness for manifesting bad qualities and characteristics that are not good for me spiritually and harmful for others, then one can really make a lot of progress towards actual self-realization. So, and when one begins to do that, they're opening up their heart and their mind to even more intense. I mean, what keeps us away from experiencing what is actually there in the spiritual sound, which is an entire spiritual world, God himself. Everything is actually there. It's like now, when I look outside and I ask, where is the sun? You know, most people go, oh, there's no sun. No, the sun is there. You simply cannot see it. Does it mean it's not there? No, you, I mean, you go out in the ocean, you know, 500 kilometers, the sun is shining. What's happening is this cloud bank is covering my vision of the sun and my ability to feel the rays, the warming rays of the sun, the influence of the sun. That analogy is what's happening when our consciousness is, is so clouded. This is called citta. Citta means the, the effect that is material consciousness. The soul is pure and is always pure, is never contaminated. One of my spiritual masters would give the example of just like a diamond that is buried below the ground and there is much rock and dirt all around it. And if one digs it out of the ground, you can't say the diamond is dirty. It's never dirty. That dirt is only on the outside. When one cleans away the dirt, the actual characteristic of the diamond is manifest. So in a similar manner, the consciousness doesn't enter the soul. It doesn't pollute the soul. It's the consciousness, the covering that becomes polluted. And everything I send outwards and everything I receive inwards is, is passing through this filter, which is corrupting everything. And that's what the clouds are like. And so when I engage in this process, it causes this cloud to, become, to dissipate.
and the sun becomes increasingly more visible and its influence and effect is increasingly felt in a, in a stronger way. This one needs great patience in this process. We have spent lifetimes being covered up by material you know, consciousness. We're deeply conditioned. But within one lifetime in this process, this conditioning can be removed. And the more that I follow the advice that's given in, in the Vedas and by my spiritual master, by the previous great spiritual teachers, the more I try to apply that, the quicker things happen, the more I am able to experience the influence, the purifying influence of, of spiritual sound. Okay, so that's the long answer to the shorter question. Yeah. What what ceremony? Like a sound ceremony where you've got like crystal bowls, yeah. rain stick, or that sort of sound phasing. Yeah. And I just wondered how does um that stack up? Oh, okay. Yeah, kinda of like how does the chanting yeah. sort of like work? Okay. So this is somewhat in line with something I mentioned before, you know, how I mentioned that nature is not actually spiritual, that it is material, but it has an effect that is more elevating. So we understand that there are, there are three powerful and invisible forces that permeate material nature. They call it the three guna, which means the three qualities or the three material modes. One of them is called the mode of ignorance, tamaguna. One is the mode of passion or rajaguna. And the third is sattvaguna or the mode of goodness. The effect that these energies have is they really affect the consciousness and then what you will be attracted to, how you will act and speak and everything. So um, the mode of ignorance means usually people become very attracted to lethargy <laughs> and laziness and darkness and intoxication and just not being productive, you know? It's like the, the worst type of couch potato, you know, where you're just like, just out there and just getting stoned all the time and not seeking anything of any real value. And it leads to different levels of, of cra what's called craziness, insanity. And, and the mode of passion is responsible for 
the creative impulse, the desire to excel. So like you see with, with artists, with business people, with athletes, you know, who will actually engage in extreme endeavor. And we're talking about the, the high end of that mode of passion. They will engage in extreme endeavor to accomplish and achieve things that are either performance related or becoming the best at something or making the most money or becoming the greatest artist and, and whatever. So the, the mode of passion produces that effect, but it leads always to um, tremendous disappointment. That's the natural outcome of, of those endeavors. One will eventually become disappointed with things. The mode of goodness is the influence where a person seeks to get away from all the noise and the clutter and the distractions, and they want to exist in a state of more calm and, and peacefulness. And where there are a person in the mode of passion, when they see beauty, they seek to use it and to exploit it. Whereas a person in the mode of goodness, they can appreciate beauty, that there is something there that is wonderful and, you know, somewhat pure or more pure, if I can put it that way. So you can see how different types of people are, are more situated in, in one of those states or somewhere in between them. Um, it's not like they act alone. Even within a, a day, a person can wake up in the morning and some days you can feel just like, bing, it's all bright and clear and everything's wonderful and you have a lot of energy. Other days you can feel up and wake up and, and it's not like you necessarily did anything, but you can wake up and feel like crap. And you're just unmotivated and can't even get your bum out of bed. And, you know, <laughs> so an individual can, can experience the influence of these different energies, these modes that permeate material nature. In, in most yogic practice and spiritual paths, knowingly or unknowingly, people were directed towards trying to be more situated in the mode of goodness, not because it is inherently spiritual, but it is a platform to more easily approach that which is spiritual. Because there's less distraction, there is more peacefulness. So when people do these things like, you know, the, the bowls and the bells and, you know, forest bathing or rain bathing and, and, and things like that, they're actually opening themselves up to the, this influence of this more subtle energy that is called the mode of goodness. And it puts them in a state that is more of, 
goodness. But you can remain for your whole life in the mode of goodness and not achieve any self-realization, any ultimate transcendental experience. It just leads to a continuation of the cycle of birth and death where you go from a really nice position to who knows where next time around. So the mode of goodness in itself, in and of itself, is not considered a spiritual goal. But all practitioners are really encouraged to try and live more in that state only because it is a a better platform your spiritual practices and everything will seem easier and you will be more focused if you are more situated on that platform. Okay? Mm-hmm. And so then for the What's that? No, that is not considered in the mode of goodness. It is transcendental to the mode of goodness. So all all actual spiritual sound. There are so many sounds and even other types of mantra that will help a person be more fixed in the mode of goodness but not take them to a transcendental experience. Whereas when one engages in this process, regardless of where you are on that scale, It will elevate you eventually to the mode of goodness, but not that that is the goal. That is one step along the way to transcendental experience. And it is so powerful that even if a person is immersed in the mode of ignorance or the mode of passion, in the time that they spend in meditation or chanting on these sounds, they can be lifted out of the condition of the mode of ignorance or passion, you know, while they're doing it and actually experience some transcendental happiness and taste. But then as soon as they stop, the tendency is to glide back to where you were. But because you have taken that step, you know, in, in, in spiritual life, whatever advancement that you make is never lost. In in some of the mystical yoga processes, you know where they would spend a whole lifetime in austerity and practice, and they would become masters of the material energy. Anyone that has acquired yogic siddhis, where they can, you know, just manifest somewhere, they can become invisible, they can manifest up to nine other forms and be present in different situations. You know, there's all kinds of just amazing powers that they would acquire. Those are material. And when a person dies, when they that life and that body terminates, they are back to zero. And in their next life, they don't have those abilities. They haven't actually gained anything. Whereas spiritual realization is progressive. Even if a person makes a tiny amount of advancement in this lifetime, 
and they die and take another birth, they will be given the opportunity to continue where they left off. And what will happen is when they come into contact with, again, with some genuine spiritual practice, there will be a feeling of affinity and attraction, something very familiar here. And one will feel kind of like more comfortable and, and their engagement now will be, you know, from where they left off and they will continue to progress. So that is the effect of, of transcendental growth or spiritual growth, but becoming completely immersed in the mode of goodness only benefits you within that lifetime and it doesn't carry over to another lifetime. Wow. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, you know, for a person that is beginning on the path of, of devotion, I mentioned that there were kind of nine activities that were all considered limbs of bhakti. And so these types of things are, are part of that process and are really helpful. Like every day you have to eat no matter what. Otherwise you don't maintain your body. And so if you remember, there was one verse I mentioned where in the Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says all that you eat, all that you offer, all that you do and give away, etc. should be done as an offering unto me. And so what, what people that are following this process do, they begin to try and cultivate a new consciousness where instead of thinking, hmm, what would I like to eat today? Ooh, yeah, that would be nice. Ooh, and then I'm cooking it up and I'm tasting it and it's kind of like, yeah, this is going to be far out. I put on my plate, whoa. <laughs> Which is a totally self-centered activity and part of what's corrupting us and what's making it so we can't have full spiritual realization. So a person that is trying to follow these practices, their thought would be, you know, okay, what can I offer to Krishna today? Oh, I'd like to make this for him. And then I try to prepare things and I don't taste it, you know, and I don't try to sort of be the one enjoying it. And I try to do it really nicely, as nicely as I can for his pleasure. Not that he needs my pasta that I'm cooking or anything, of course not. But this is a, a mechanism by which we can cultivate a personal relationship and bring about a transformation of consciousness. So then after preparing it nicely, then people either, you know, just right there and in a silent meditation, or if they have like an altar 
where they then prepare nicely on a special plate that's only used for offering and they go and place it there and they may bow and ask, please, you know, accept this offering. I know you are not in need of any such thing, but if you would accept this, it would be a great blessing to me. And I have tried my best to do it nicely for you. And then in making that offering, it is actually explained that when one offers with some mood of love, that that offering actually becomes accepted and it takes on a spiritual quality, whether you perceive it or not. And then the food that is taken, they actually have a term for it, it's called prashadam. Prashadam means mercy. And so one then takes that food and quite reverentially and joyfully feels, well, I am very fortunate to have this special mercy. And in eating it, it nourishes the body, but more importantly, it nourishes the soul, that spiritual activity. And so a person learns to actually incorporate their entire life, their entire life is part, is an activity of devotion where everything is being offered. And I am simply, I'm doing a, what was that guy's name? Brian Adams? Everything I do, I do it for you, <laughs> except, uh, except I'm not doing it for some other person, you know my girlfriend or boyfriend, in reality, everything I do, I am doing it, I do it for you. Every breath I take, you know, if that was directed towards the Supreme Lord, that's the most perfectly wonderful condition. And so the great transcendentalist, you know, while they may appear outwardly to be like everybody else in many ways, Internally, they are living a life of profound devotion and their consciousness is intimately connected with the Supreme. And their life is joyful and they don't show in public many of the experiences that they have because it's private but they experience profound transcendental ecstasies and realizations in this activity. Um, I wanted to ask a question in relation to all this and um, also uh, in reference to what you were saying earlier about not attaching uh, with the creation impulse. I was wondering, um, as someone who writes a lot, um, can I purify this writing or spiritualize this writing in service of Krishna every day, even if the writing itself is in relation to the yeah. things? The, this, this is what the process is about. It's about redirection. Instead of writing, because I mean, if you have a talent at something, it is good to recognize that it is God-given. 
And because it is God-given, it should be used in his service. That then becomes a purification of your life and adding real meaning and purpose to it. So, I mean, you look at Arjuna, his, you know, skills and ability were as warriors. And so he was engaged in, in fighting battles and, and doing it to be pleasing to God, making great personal sacrifice, being prepared to even offer up my own life to protect the defenseless and the innocent, to right that which is wrong. So, I mean, if that can be made an offering, why not writing or... Miri? And enlightenment, it, it, it is practically this, the same thing. You know this word realization? You, I mean, if you really understand that word, it's, it's like an amazing word. It's like when somebody, an architect, has some idea of designing and having a building constructed. And then they say once it was accomplished, he was able to realize his dream or her dream, whatever. Meaning it's gone from, you know, a conceptual state to a manifest reality. And so if we think of self-realization in that context, it means, you know, moving from a, a just a conceptual idea to an actual reality, there is a realization. It is a manifest reality of that, of that experience. Enlightenment is quite often used in conjunction with that, but it really speaks to shining a light on things. You know that term, to shine a light on something? means to dissipate darkness, to see the reality of things. So uh, self-realization, you know, it, it manifests in an enlightened life where I actually live out this realization. And it is a condition of, of light as opposed to darkness. So, you know, they can be used in place of each other, but self-realization is probably, you know, it's very specific, whereas enlightenment can be used in other circumstances too, but pretty much you're talking about the same thing. Someone had a question yesterday morning. Oh, yeah. uh, you had a question. Oh. What was the question? Oh. Well, that's not very helpful, James. You've you've just shown that I was, you know. I, I spaced out. 
What happens after death? Depends on your state of consciousness. For the vast majority of materially entangled beings, prior to death, you will have in your lifetime accumulated desire and attraction for certain ways of trying to enjoy this world. Coupled with a monumental mountain of karmic reaction for all of your engagements. And depending upon the nature of your desires, you will, in leaving this body at death, your subtle body, you have two coverings, the gross physical body and the subtle body. The subtle body made of the mind, manas, buddhi or intelligence, ahankara or false ego. These are the intimate coverings of the soul. And they, in the same way that air carries aroma, you know, you can have a smell wifting out. The, the subtle body brings with it the soul, the entangled soul, and you will be put into another body based upon the nature of your desires and your past karmic fruit. So it's always amazing when you see a, a baby show up you know, it's just, it's mind-blowing to, to see the birth of a child. And as I said, you know, your life will be enriched to be present as, at as many births as possible and to be at the bedside of those who die as many as possible to assist people and through that experience, your life becomes enriched. But people look at little babies and they think, oh, it's so pure and innocent. No, it's not. <laughs> what you're not seeing is a massive amount of baggage that little dude is bringing with them into that new body. And, you know, people just... And, and it's, it's part of a biological thing too. It's part of the, the nature of the material world where when someone sees a helpless little infant, infant, there is this really strong protective instinct to protect and to nurture. It's much stronger in women than it is in, in men. The psychology that is, you know, comes with those particular bodies. But, you know, everybody just like, they just feel such softness. But if you saw that person 10 months ago, you wouldn't feel that same way. They're all wrinkled and no teeth and coughing mucus. <laughs> and it's the same person. <laughs> They've just had a change of dress. 
<laughs> you know, they've got this cute little body. <laughs> and you are driven by these, you know, biological instincts and everything, which are wonderful and good things. But, you know, people bring a massive amount of baggage with them. Certain tendencies, certain consciousness, the way things have been shaped, you know, and then you notice it, if you, especially if you have, you know, a number of children, some of them just are sweet and kind. I, there's always this, I can remember years ago, somebody sent me this weird compilation of, uh, you know, Jimmy Kimmel, the guy, he, he's got like a late night show or whatever. And then he, he would do this thing like Jimmy Kimmel made me do it. You know, he would ask parents, like in America, the uh, Halloween is this big thing and they go out what they call trick or treating and the kids get knock on doors and they dress in costumes. People give them all these sweets, you know, different kinds of things. And then you usually, parents usually tell them, no, you can't eat any of it at night, but we'll have it a little bit every day, you know, during the daytime. And so the kids are kind of like, they wake up in the morning and they're, they're gung-ho to hit the, hit the sweets from the night before. And Jimmy Kimmel has asked them, you tell the kids that you got hungry at night and ate all of the candy. And then they video the kids' reaction. <laughs> and they said, Jimmy Kimmel told me to do it. I, you know. And then majority of the kids, they just go apeshit. I mean, just like... <laughs> And I just, just, but then occasionally you get this kid, you know, where mom says, you know, oh, we got really hungry, so we ate it. And without, without missing a beat, the kid goes, that's okay, mommy, you were hungry. Yeah, but I ate everything. It's okay, you were hungry, mommy. It's all right. Don't worry, you know. And it's just like, whoa, what a reaction. You know, the contrast between the selfish, you know, monster that appeared and this really sweet little soul, you know, who's just like, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> so people bring baggage with them into, the, into life you will have a type of consciousness that is, you know, being conditioned from previous lifetime. And then this lifetime molds and adds to that. And of course, the job of parents, the primary responsibility of a parent is to teach your children that you are an eternal spiritual being and you are not the center of the universe. <laughs> you have to learn to stand in line, that there are others, and you need to take that into consideration. So, you know, I, I always felt that that was enormously important for children to learn that. And when they learn it, they, they stand a good chance of growing up to be a compassionate and caring person that has self-control. 
But if you just teach them, you contribute to the self-centeredness by giving them everything they want and letting them do the everything they want, you're, you're setting them up for massive unhappiness. Some people refer to this as old school. Oh, we're different now. You know, okay, let's see how one, that one works out. Let's give it a couple of generations and see what kind of a world you create. So I'm just going to close out with a little thing um, because, you know, two days ago we were talking about social media and everything and how our life is being controlled. And, and take a look at, you know, the talk we do this Wednesday. You know, you might find it very helpful. But one of the things that I will talk about in this talk is a description that was given by this guy, Tristan Harris. Tristan Harris used to be a design ethicist for Google, and he left because he was so disappointed with the way Google operates and how manipulative they are. And he, he did a, he did a, or participated in a documentary called The Social Dilemma. I strongly recommend that you watch that attentively. There is much to be learned about how we are being manipulated and controlled by all this stuff. So in, in giving evidence before the US Congress, he spoke about the actual business model of big tech. This is their business model. He said, big tech, their model is to create, a, and this is his words, to create a society that is addicted, outraged, polarized, performative, and disinformed. And that's just the fundamentals of how it works. All of these apps, all of these big tech companies have designed their interaction with you and me to produce this result. And whether you recognize it or not, it is going to have that um, effect. So I will just, just as in the Ashtanga yoga process, you have yamas and niyamas, you know, things that you should, the do's and don'ts. In your life, I would highly recommend that people learn how to limit their usage of devices. Severely limit them. Don't just go looking online in order to fill up some empty space. If you are feeling lonely, distracted, empty, not knowing what to do, don't reach for the device to fill that space. 
You are wrecking yourself by doing that. Also, don't, even though it may appear very attractive, don't just click on things that you are fed. Meaning if you were looking at some specific YouTube video, then you got the little things that are offered you on the side or you open, you know, Facebook or because of this. And it's such bullshit. The whole friend thing and being connected. It's just a way to really exploit you, you know, and they're going to start feeding you. Oh, this is what your friends just posted. This is what they're doing. Who gives a shit? Really? How's it going to enrich your life? It's no, it's going to have those other effects that I talked about. Don't just click on stuff that you are fed. Your inability to resist that. It's just like, you know, the, the, the device thing. If somebody came to a meeting, you know, with a social or business or whatever, and they sat across the table and they put their device there and you reach across and take that device and slide it out of their reach to beside you, people would just like lose the plot. Well, why did you do that? What? <laughs> they would be so upset only because you've moved it beyond their control. And even if they're following etiquette, every and they put their phone on silent, every time it vibrates, there is this overwhelming urge. Who was it? What was that? Uh, what's going on? You know, and just want to quick look, quick look, quick look. You know, once you know, my God, you've been so disrespectful to the person is sitting in front of you, and now it's all become socially acceptable to be so incredibly rude and disrespectful. I'm just looking at my feed. It's my friend. You know, it's just oh my God, what the hell has happened? Stop seeking acceptance and validation through empty posts, meaning your posts and others. If you are posting or visiting posts looking for validation and acceptance or reinforcement, you are being highly manipulated and it will not produce that result. Stop doing it. And don't just react to stuff. If you see something that you like or intensely dislike, don't just react. Let it go. Let it go. In terms of the do's, you must learn to take charge of your mind meaning you must be consciously deciding what's going to go on in there, what's going to be put in there, and, and what is my chosen method of processing that. You need to take charge of your mind rather than becoming victimized and enslaved by an out-of-control mind. My next advice is to get a life, <laughs> a real one. 
online life is not real. Get a real life. And that means developing purpose. Having thoughtfully decided on an actual purpose for my existence. And then all my decisions and actions have to do with achieving this purpose, fulfilling this purpose. Another thing is to become more informed. And the yoga wisdom is, I, I know, to be the best information because it gives you a broad understanding of things. The other thing is also to practice tolerance and humility. You must actively cultivate these qualities. You know what? It is impossible to make serious spiritual advancement without practicing both tolerance and humility. That's a big subject. Next thing I advise, be kind. Actually be kind. In the deepest sense. Don't just seek to pacify somebody who has got You know, sometimes people develop so-called needs and they're just seeking, you know, to have their false ego stroked or to be supported. You know, these sayings like you're just perfect as you are. No, you're not. <laughs> Especially if the you is not the soul itself, is the body and the mind. The mind, the uncontrolled mind is categorized as the greatest enemy of the soul. You're not perfect. God is perfect. You're not perfect. You'll never be, even spiritually. But what to speak of the body and the mind? No, it's full of imperfection. But everything's cool. You're an eternal spiritual being. Doesn't get more wonderful than that. You are lovable and you are loved in the deepest spiritual sense, in ways that you cannot even imagine or comprehend without experiencing. You are loved. You have an eternal friend, a soulmate, who actually cares for you. Cultivate spiritual wisdom and meditate. There we go. That's it. All done. I know it's easier said than done because I am like you. We are the same in many respects. I, I am entirely lacking in good qualities and qualification and intelligence. I, I have been a recipient of wonderful mercy 
from my spiritual teachers. And if you see any good in me whatsoever, that is a reflection of them and not of me. But I know the process works. I know this chanting is unimaginably powerful. But anyway, that's another story. Thank you very much. Hi, boy.
Hare Krishna. 